1: Welcome to the live version of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, doing the show every Friday evening here on Revolution.Radio, the finest of listener-sponsored networks. My website is truthjihad.com, and I'm at kevinbarrett.substack.com, where you can find all of my work. You can subscribe and get early access to these shows, as well as all kinds of other fun stuff. Tonight, I'm going to talk to a couple of brilliant and prolific writers. That's what I like to do here. I'm sort of translating writing into conversation. When I was a kid, or when I was much younger anyway, I really enjoyed watching William F. Buckley going at it with Gore Vidal on Firing Line and things like that. These people, well, I don't know about Buckley, but Vidal was a pretty good writer, and listening to him talk was illuminating. And likewise, listening to other writers talk, getting a sense of the person behind the words on the page was really useful, and so I try to do that, and I focus not so much on the talkers that you see on YouTube, but the podcasters, those sorts of people, but I focus on people who are good writers, and tonight's guests both are. Benoit Campmark comes on in the second hour. He's an Australian professor who cranks out a lot of stuff, much of it at Counterpunch, and he got my attention last week with his article on Assange's foiled escape. That is quite the tale. And you'll hear about that in the second hour. Tonight, though, in the first hour, we're going to talk about whether what we talk about in the second hour could possibly affect what happens in the first hour. That is, can the future go back into the past and change it? Is that a paradox? Could people kill their own grandfather and disappear? Or jump to another timeline? It sounds pretty goofy and science fiction-esque, but apparently there's a certain amount of scientific evidence that such things really could happen. So let's talk to... My favorite, science writer, Josh Middeldorf. Josh is a wide-ranging and utterly fearless thinker who writes with uncommon lucidity so that non-science geeks like me can actually have a sense of what he's talking about when he tackles these really complex and fascinating scientific topics. And he also talks about other stuff like the election integrity issue, which we're also going to talk about tonight. And he talks, or rather writes, Really, really well. So it's a pleasure and an honor to bring him back here. Welcome, Josh Mitteldorf. How's it going?
0: Thanks, Kevin, for your kind words.
1: Yeah, well, no, it's it's true. I mean, you're really uh, you're quite good at what you do, and I really appreciate your complete frankness and willingness to go anywhere that the truth leads. Yeah, to.
0: I try. I try <laughs> to go where other people aren't going. That's. Uh... What keeps life interesting?
1: I agree completely. Yeah, you know, what, when they're all saying the same thing, maybe there's something they're missing. Let's find out what that is. It turns out that a lot of the important stuff seems to be sort of systematically, if not deliberately, missed. Uh, you've noticed that too, I take it.
0: Um, yeah. I, just before I came on, I've been was reading an article from the New York Times in January. What Happened to All of Science's Big Breakthroughs? And the article is about all of the tremendous uh, new ideas in science, really groundbreaking ideas that happened between maybe 1860 and uh, 1950. Uh, maybe stretch that up through 1955, 1962. Uh, 55 was the uh the genetic code discovered by Crick and 62 maybe 64 was the microwave background that changed cosmology um and before that there was quantum mechanics and uh, all of molecular biology and there was uh relativity earlier than that there was Darwin's theory of evolution it was really a century of magnificent chi- scientific advance, and it's halted. There has been a lot of science since 1970. There's been uh, a tremendous amount of data taken, but there's very little in the way of basic new ideas and the question is, is that because, well, we've got the basic ideas right now and uh, we don't expect any more advances on that level. We're just working out the details. Or is it because there are system- systemic uh, incentives to keep going with the old theories and not push a new one?
1: Well, that seems kind of unfair that, you know, I was born in 1959 and you're probably in the same general range. And so we were – Born right at the end of the exciting century of scientific discovery, and basically, hardly anything has happened in our lifetimes. Uh, is it our fault? <laughs> what are we doing wrong?
0: I often apologize to my daughters and say, you know, every generation before has left the world with a better a, a better place than the world that they inherited, including my parents who handed to me a better world than they inherited. And I've got to say that the world that I'm in passing off to my daughters is, it has much more um, danger and less opportunity than the world that was handed to me when I came of age.
1: And do you think that's because of some sort of almost uh, inevitable Spenglerian decline of civilization? Or uh, you mentioned earlier it could be because the sort of basic. Ideas have already been discovered and we got them right. On the other hand, your work actually suggests that's not the case. There are a lot of areas where the conventional wisdom could be wrong and we could have another Thomas Kuhn-style scientific revolution. But for some reason, they haven't happened except here on my radio show talking
0: with you. (laughs) So the issue that I was talking about with the world just being a much more dangerous place and more secretive and more controlled by big money uh, that 's something you know more about than I do, and you know we can see it, but i don 't know that I have any understanding of it. The part of it that 's about science, I do think I have a handle on i I think I can see that science has become professionalized, and people go into it as a career rather than as a passion um, they're the professors at universities people i work with all the time are constantly writing grants thinking about how am i going to support my grad students if if they can't get grad grants to keep their uh, uh, their lab going it's a disaster you know that you nobody wants to lay off a bunch of postdocs and uh, turn them out to the winds so they're constantly writing grant proposals not to do what's edgy and, gee, wouldn't it be great if this worked out, but to do what's predictable and what's fundable. Uh, Nobody wants to fund an idea that's probably going to fail, and yet, that's where you've got to be. If you're in the business of coming up with truly new scientific ideas, you've got to accept a 90% failure rate and feel lucky when when the 10% turns out to be something revolutionary.
1: So all the people who love to fund things that are likely to fail must be, you know, they, they were all funding Silicon Valley and the Internet back in the 90s, <laughs> and that bubble popped. But, you know, those those high-risk investor types obviously are not the people that grant writers are getting their money from.
0: MSF is notoriously um, risk-averse, and it's a great way to run a business you can run a really good business just by avoiding losing money, but it's a terrible way to run science. Uh, you you get what we see, a lot of new data, a lot of sort of extending the present parad- paradigms, but very little in the way of um, really new ideas.
1: Well, I don't know about running a business, but in terms of investing – You could argue that being sort of the opposite of risk averse uh, or risk embracing might actually be a better strategy if you can afford it, because people. The studies show that people are naturally risk averse to the point that they're irrational. So they would rather, you know, invest their their fifty cents on something that's pretty sure to give them fifty one cents next week, and the downside is forty nine and a half cents versus something that's got a 50-50 chance of giving them $10. And so that systematic irrationality is one of the many that have been explored by people in the investment community and then the people in the know who can figure that out and figure that the market is going to be dominated by this irrational risk aversion. They just go out there and and sort of uh, compartmentalize their risks, you know they take lots and lots of risk that's why people did make big money funding these crazy <laughs> silicon valley startups most of which were completely harebrained. but you know a couple of them turned into things like you know microsoft and and google and facebook and things like that and so those investors still made money but of course that's another topic but yeah risk risk aversion is built into our nature to the point of be, of irrationality maybe it's not so irrational though in real life as opposed to purely sort of quantitative reasoning
0: uh, as soon as the interview is over, I'll uh, tap your brain for investment ideas. <laughs> I've been notorious. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, I'm so rich. I've obviously. been terrible <laughs> in that area. <laughs> well, well, I,
1: yeah, I've never invested. I'd probably be a, a zillionaire if I'd ever had money to invest. But no, I'm just kidding. I just listen to these people that come on my show, and I, you know, I see some of these zero hedge types. And just you know, I, I have a couple of friends who invest, and so I've uh, also my, my father was a finance professor. And uh so Oh that's he, a
0: piece of your background I didn't know about.
1: Yeah. Well he he actually started out being a lawyer and an engineer and and then an Olympic gold medalist in sailboat racing and then he he wound up becoming a finance professor for some reason. I'm not quite sure what that was, but anyway, so yeah, I've I've kind of heard the basics of that sort of thing from various people. Not and uh but anybody who would trust me as their financial advisor probably would be well advised to to not do that. Uh, Oh, shucks. (laughs) Yeah, sorry Josh, I'm not going to make you rich. Actually, I think you're more likely to make me rich because some of these ideas- The time
0: machine, this is our- There you go.
1: There you go. I was going to say immortality bill, but let's go with the time machine. <laughs> so what's with this time warp stuff? What's tell tell us about this this new article you have? Uh, it's about time can the future reach into the past to call itself into existence? That sounds like something people would talk about while they're taking bong hits back in nineteen seventy seven or whenever I last lived in that world. Um, in other words, it's it's science fictiony. It's kind of trippy, um, and yet there's scientific evidence that it might actually be an interesting thing to think about.
0: Well, this is a long rambling essay in which I go at the topic from many different angles talking around it, but never straight through it. I don't know how to talk about um, the future causing the past in any way that's sensible. It just defies all of our intuitions, and even setting up an experiment to test it, uh, you're it's hard to know how to how to do it. Um, so where to start? One place to start is the evidence in terms of um, precognition experiments. Uh, you know that there was a taboo against publishing parapsychology in psychology journals ever since Freud. Decided, you know, he had his hands full just trying to make psychology into an acceptable science, but parapsychology, he just steered clear of it, even though he saw consistently evidence of strange things happening. Jung tried to bring that to
1: his attention, right?
0: Yeah. And Jung was much more courageous about writing about that stuff and also, um, less analytic. In his writing, so his, his writing was much more artistic and, um, he was great and inspirational, but he didn't try to do what, uh, Freud did, which is to found a scientific discipline. Um, so th- there's been this taboo. And then uh, a few years ago, Daryl Bem, who was a senior professor at Cornell in psychology, just took the leap and published a paper about seeing the future, feeling the future, I think it's called, in which he did a number of psychological experiments, classic psychological experiments, like um, if you see a boring picture of a sunset on your screen, then you're heart rate doesn't jump and your galvanic skin resistance doesn't do anything spectacular. But if you see a picture of a car crash or a war scene that's uh, disgusting and terrifying, then it, you can see the physiological effects. So he, what Bem did in his variation was to measure people's response, uh, these physiological characteristics before the picture came on the screen. So there is a random uh random collection of pictures in a in an order that's randomized by a computer algorithm. So nobody knows what picture is going to come up next. But if you look at the galvanic skin response of people three seconds before the picture appears on the screen, there's a signal that suggests that the body knows that a disturbing picture is coming compared to a boring picture or a peaceful picture. So that, there was one of his cr- that's, experiments.
1: That's really stunning, isn't it? I mean, that that means that we sort of, at some level, subliminally sense what's coming about three seconds before it arrives.
0: Yeah, it is completely unexplainable and hard to hard to parse it in terms of the science that we understand and yet at some level it's not surprising haven't we all had intuitions about what's going to happen uh, premonitions dreams about what happens going to happen the next day uh, I know people who called me up after 9-11 and said they had nightmares for several days before 9-11 that uh, something horrible was going to happen uh, some of them uh, about uh, buildings collapsing. Um, maybe you've had, maybe you know people like that. Yeah, too. no,
1: I actually have had a number of those. It, one of the reasons that I'm convinced that Psy is real is that I've experienced a fair bit of it myself. And the main category, the one, the most frequent category, has been apparently precognitive <laughs> dreams. And like, what once I woke up in the middle of the night repeatedly. This was when I was living in San Francisco, an earthquake city, and I kept dreaming of these earthquakes followed by tidal waves. And so that was a, I hardly got any sleep that night. And then the next day the headline in the San Francisco Chronicle was earthquakes, comma, tidal waves uh, rock Japan. And uh, I mean I can't prove that that's uh, but yeah, I mean the odds of that being coincidence or it seem is kind of low. Mm-hmm. And then you add up all of these other ones. Uh, I won't, go, I won't bore you with all the long story.
0: No, I love these stories, <laughs> but I, I don't know if this, where, this is where you want to go with your list. No, I'm not,
1: I'm not going to, yeah, I don't wanna, I could eat up the whole hour trying to remember all of these details of, of precognitive dreams, but I, I wrote them down for all. I followed the method that John Dunn explored in his book, An Experiment with Time. Now, this is not John Dunn, the poet. This is John Dunn, the chrononaut. <laughs> Uh, he lived at the beginning of the 20th century he was known for having had precognitive dreams or rather was it yeah i think his, his dreams were about uh like plane crashes or you know plane problems in wartime and then he ended up serving in wartime and he ended up write, writing down all of his dreams systematically you know you can do that you can remember your dreams if you set an alarm clock Something that wakes you up a little bit before you would naturally wake up and you have a, a pencil or a pen and, and paper right by your bedside. So if you do that systematically for a while, what you find, as he did, is that maybe, maybe, you know, 15% or 10, percent a substantial minority of your dreams really seem to have uh, precognitive content. Something will happen that was very, very much resonates with the dream uh, theme or image or you know, often like very highly specific, like the earthquakes and tidal waves example I mentioned.
0: I write down my dreams fairly consistently. Four or five times a week, I get something at least to write down. And I haven't had precognitive dreams in all the years I've been doing this. Um, I I learn things from my dreams, but that's not one of the things I see.
1: That's interesting. Well, I've had less of them. I I had more of them when I was younger, and it's it's – more you know they're they're few and far between now
0: so here's another experiment from daryl bem um if you are given a list of words you read the list of words to you and then all right repeat back to me as many of them as you can remember i suppose beforehand you select some half of those words and you drill people on the words before the test well the test is a lot easier for words that you've drilled on. And of course, people do much better on recalling words that they've rehearsed ahead of time. But now select those words, uh, select them ahead of time, but don't drill. Give them the test. And then after the test is over, you drill them on the words that you had decided ahead of time. These are the words we're going to drill you on. Well, people do better recalling those words that they are going to drill on right after the test. I didn't know that. That was another that. one of, that, another one one. of huh. uh, Ben's experiments.
1: Wow. Yeah. So, so what you're going to learn in the future, uh, or or experience, but in this case, consciously, intentionally learn somehow seems reaches back into the past. That's a uh, huh, uh, that that kind of. Yeah, Makes me think of the process of getting fluent in a foreign language. It kind of, it almost feels that way, like there's this future self that's fluent. In my case, the one that I got most fluent in, uh, was French. And it was almost like there was a future self who was a particular per- sub-personality, like a little, you know, a little different from my English speaking personality that was almost sort of coming into existence from the future, you know, <laughs> and somehow making it easier for me to become that person if that makes wow. any sense
0: um, I, I can only imagine uh, I, I haven't had that experience but uh, I I believe it because I know people who
1: report you I, I'm not even sure I believe it <laughs> <laughs> oh man so yeah that's it's, it's uh, very you know, really really does raise questions about the way that science describes the world in the scientific uh, background for why this could be plausible whether there's the the quantum thing where you know the collapse of the wave function seems to you know lead to a particular state when it's observed or when someone's conscious of it. it but that makes it puts it back in that state in the past in other words the influence is flowing into the past and i think there's some other sort of uh scientific explanations of how this could be possible is that right
0: um, so you're referring to Bell's theorem, and it's always tricky to say something about Bell's theorem that is both accurate and comprehensible because it just <laughs> <laughs> doesn't okay. make any
1: sense. This sounds like I'll, an, I'll, the uncertainty I'll principle of Bell's theorem.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, um, the way I talk about it is that there's an uncertainty. There's a, a randomness built into quantum mechanics, and Einstein always said, it, it can't be, God doesn't play dice, the world doesn't act like this, there must be hidden in the present, hidden information that we can't see, that, um, that is what's determining the future, it's not random, he's not, he's not willing to believe that it's random, um, and he, he went to his grave thinking that that must be true and had arguments with Bohr Um, in 1935. A thought experiment came out, which just dominated the field for years after that. But then after Einstein was gone in 1964, um, a Swiss physicist named John S. Bell proved a theorem, not terribly complex, but very unexpected that he found – he used exactly the situation that Einstein had talked about in his thought experiment of 1935 and analyzed it in a way that demonstrated that any any theory that had the present determining the future uh, with variables that are determined but Invisible to us observers, would have a different prediction than the quantum mechanical prediction in, uh, about a, this particular situation that Einstein described. So it really distinguished the hidden variable idea, which Einstein proposed, and the the quantum mechanical determination, which was very clear and uh, everybody knew you're able to calculate that. So then after that, the race was on to do these experiments and see, well, do these quantum mechanical expectations hold? Um, And the experiment is not terribly difficult, but it required some fast operating machinery and delicate machinery. So it took a decade or so to do those experiments. And those experiments proved that it's the quantum mechanical prediction and not the hidden variable theory that uh, wins out. And those experiments won the Nobel Prize. Uh, John Bell is no longer with us. He wasn't able to get the prize. I'm sure he would have. But uh, the experimentalists, who followed on him and showed that it's quantum mechanical prediction that's borne out. Those guys won the Nobel Prize uh, just last uh, September, October. So, um, what does this have to do with time reversal? That In the hin variable, uh, there's a, a loophole in the reasoning that says that You can have hidden variable theories that are viable, if they are, um, if the future is allowed to to affect the past, if really if all the world is one thing, and this is an interpretation of quantum mechanics which seems very natural too, that two particles that are separated by a long distance, are part of the same wave function. There's one function that describes the two of them, such that any measurement that you make on one of them instantaneously affects the one that's far away. But instantaneous isn't really strong enough. It can affect the other particle backwards in time. So in that sense, the future influencing the past is built into quantum mechanics and provably so
1: um, yeah that, that's a really good summary. <laughs> Thank you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if, if that works, that's great now the the one further thing is, well, uh, can we use this to make hay? Can we use it to um, send signals? to ourselves backwards in time about what the Dow Jones average is going to be tomorrow and part of Bell's theorem is to demonstrate that this influence of the future on the past even though you can prove that it happens it is always lost in the quantum noise if remember there's this randomness in any quantum determination and the future's influence on the past is always part of the noise and not part of the signal. And people have got all kinds of ingenious ways to go around this. Uh, a friend who I admire a lot, uh, Nick Herbert, um, has done more creative writing around quantum mechanics than anybody I know. He wrote a whole book about superluminal, lum- super faster than light really, is, is equivalent to going back backwards in time, according to Einstein. So he had a whole book about superluminal sig- signaling, and um, nobody's really been able to make it work. But it's, they're so close, it seems speculative that some new physics will be discovered. And when you look at Daryl Bem's experiments, something's got to explain them. And um, quantum mechanics is almost there.
1: Very interesting.
0: And is, isn't
1: there also the description of a time machine that would allow uh, signals or even matter to go into the past uh, by, uh, I, I recall, um, it's been a while since I read this stuff. And I, by the way, I'm impressed that you're friends with Nick Herbert. I've read a bunch of his work and uh, really always, always love that stuff. But there are descriptions of black hole time machines that involve sending your spaceship past the black hole at a particular kind of speed, particular trajectory. Maybe the black hole has to be rotating or something, I forget. But um, there's theoretically a way that sends you off into the past as you go breaking away from the gravity well of the black hole. And I don't know if you've looked into that.
0: Only a little bit. Probably I know as much about it as you do. That oh, that's sad. <laughs> that's a, a all. Huge, huge amount of energy to set up one of these things, you know, like, like all of the energy of the sun that you need in your basement to create this uh, black hole that has just the right characteristics. But it's interesting that theoretically it's possible, even though there's um, no way to, to do that experiment.
1: Well, I would think the superluminal thing would also require an awful lot of energy because as you get faster and faster and faster approaching the speed of light, you have to use more energy to get each unit of speed, and so it's going to take a tremendous amount of energy to get really, really close to the speed of light, and I thought theoretically you didn't you couldn't find enough energy to break it and go faster than the speed of light and and go back into the past.
0: yeah, however we get to motion faster than the speed of light or motion from the future into the past it's not going to be by just pumping more and more and more energy into it and goes faster and faster and faster. And that's the one that Einstein proved is not going to work, that the amount of energy that is absorbed as you approach the speed of light becomes infinite. So um, without an infinite supply of energy, you can't do that. But there's nothing in relativity that actually proves that you can't have particles traveling faster than the speed of light. it's just that you can't get there from here. You can't take a particle that's moving slower than the speed of light and pump enough energy into it to uh, cross that threshold. Uh, so that has fueled a lot of speculation. Uh, uh, physicists are creative, and they love to write about this stuff. A tachyon is the word for a particle that goes faster than light. And if you Google tachyons, you'll find hundreds of papers, if not thousands of papers, written on tachyons, even though no one's ever seen one.
1: Interesting. Yeah, well, so the trick would be finding the bridge over to that other level where the faster-than-light particles might live, and all sorts of other weird stuff might live, too, which uh, might be what, you know, the, it might be the, the Alam al-Akhar or the Alam al raib, the hidden world that the Quran talks about, but that takes us off into theology, and we are halfway through the hour and you also published a very interesting piece on the election integrity movement
0: and so just Yeah. Let me just yeah. add one more thing before okay. we go on to election integrity. I, I, I certainly do want to talk about the the other topic. Um, uh, in the conventional view of science, physics is the fundamental science and chemistry is based on physics and life makes use of physics and chemistry to do the magic that it does. And yet there are these hints that life is able to do things that are not explained by our chem- our present understanding of chemistry and physics. Um, we, we talked last time I was on the show about the um, the origin of life and how hard it is to explain that in terms of conventional physics and chemistry. And there are other examples like reading minds, like knowing the future, where biology seems to do things that our present physics and chemistry don't allow. And uh, this fits with a view of the world called idealism, in which consciousness is fundamental. And consciousness exists on a level... Um, On a level with with matter, consciousness is equally real with matter, and there's some interaction between them. And when I think about the future of of science, that's where I imagine we're going to have to go. We're going to have to find explanations for these things that biological systems that are able to do, that computers or uh, no man-made system can do. And in the process, I have a feeling that we're going to find that biology is fundamental, that consciousness is fundamental, and uh, that the emergence of conscious beings is really the reason for the universe that we live in.
1: Okay, well, that's a a really good place to leave it, and I I can't top that. So (laughs)
0: let's
1: go back into the past and see if we can change the outcome of all these (laughs) elections, and and especially the, uh, the the. You know, the cheating with elections and counting votes crookedly is bad enough, but like, you know, killing the best candidates like uh, JFK, RFK, and Paul Wellstone to take three examples. There are a number of others as well, but those are standouts. Um, that's that's just not good. So if we go back to the grassy knoll on November twenty second, nineteen sixty three, and sneak up behind that that gunman and like tap him on the shoulder just as he was getting off that shot, and so the uh, <laughs> the headshot misses, and hopefully doesn't hit some innocent person on the other side of the, of the motorcade, uh, we might be in a better world. So <laughs> that's my segue to the issue of election integrity uh from from retrocausality. <laughs> so but but seriously Josh as your article on election integrity and mentioning Dominion voting machine systems this is a it's kind of a uh, an anomaly because you know generally the the people who are talking about The 2020 election and the problems with Dominion voting machines, which sued Fox News and apparently won this big award. Uh, that's, it's almost all the, you know, hardcore Trump supporting Republicans who are on that side. And then the entire other side, everybody who's not a hardcore Trump supporting Republican is, has mostly, they've been brainwashed by the mainstream media to say, Oh, it's all, it's all these crazy Trump supporters. There's no, there's no there there. Uh, but here you are, certainly not uh, in lockstep with Trump supporters, nor in lockstep with the other side, the anti-Trump side, and you're arguing that,
0: you know, there's too many voting machines. So maybe, are
1: we, are we, can we even talk about them, or are we going to get sued? <laughs> uh,
0: if you don't have three quarters of a billion dollars, then uh, you're in much better shape than Fox News. So Let, let me just summarize this issue. F- first, I, I should say that um, the computerized voting theft goes back to computerized voting, which is uh, following the Help America Vote Act, the notorious Help America Vote Act, which computerized elections around the country. And it suddenly became possible to steal elections just by changing a few lines of software code rather than by stuffing ballot boxes and stealing them honestly the old-fashioned way. So I became involved in this movement as a statistician in 2004 after discovering from exit poll data that it was very likely that Bush had stolen the election from Kerry in Ohio in 2004, but also elsewhere. The exit poll disparity was all over the country. Um, And since then, I've seen... Continual increases in the exit poll disparities that they generally favor Republicans and that Republicans seem to do much better in the official count than they do in the exit polls. And they even uh, stack the exit polls saying, well, we got it wrong last time. Maybe we need to shift the kinds of people that we're sampling and change the rules so that we can predict the next election better. And even with the moving of the polls to the right and to the right and to the right, the Republicans still seem to do better every time in the election counts, the machine counts than they do in the exit polls. So so I've watched that and documented it as a statistician for the exit poll, for the um, community of maybe a few hundred of us. Around the country, you've had Jonathan Simon watch on elections. the show quite a bit. Oh, you have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's yeah, yeah, so the great he, shift he, guy. Yeah, he's a buddy of mine. I, he's my closest. He strikes me as a good guy. Yeah, but he,
1: he also was you know unwilling to completely dismiss the you know the pro Trump uh, election integrity people. Uh, he found it difficult because he's he's a hardcore died in the wool sort of left leaning uh, anti Trump guy but he still has enough intellectual integrity that he said, you know, maybe we should be finding a bipartisan way to go after this problem.
0: So just to continue my summary, uh, this is the state of the the art was that we had all this evidence that, that votes were being stolen from Democrats and we took it to prominent Democrats in Congress. We took it to the New York times. We took it to think tanks that, Were sponsored by Democrats in Washington, and nobody would touch this issue. And uh, why wouldn't they be interested in making the elections more honest and, in the process, getting more Democrats into office and fewer Republicans? But we saw this happen over and over again. There must be self-hating Democrats. Or something going on. (laughs) They have no interest in fixing this problem, but that brings us to 2020. What happened in 2020? Well, there there's evidence that for the first time in a long while, actually, there's evidence that the um, that the Democrats did better than they. Should have done. The evidence is much weaker. We didn't have the polling evidence because it was a crazy election in which everybody voted by mail. You don't have exit polls, which tended to be our best evidence. So the evidence is anecdotal, it's weak. But Trump is not about to sit down and uh, say, well, you know, I'm going to take one for the country. We can't have people uh, doubting the election results. So He's, even with weaker evidence, uh, in his, in his favor, he was willing to stand up and demand a recount, which nobody was willing to do before. And that split our movement. Um, there was a majority of us that said, we're not going to get into this one. We're, we're not interfering on the side of Trump. Um, and a, a minority, I, I was part of the minority that said, look, We've been asking to have people in the street um, demanding accountable, accountability in our elections, demanding transparency in the way votes are counted. We've been wanting that for a decade and more. Finally, it's happening in Washington on January 6th. We have to support these people. Uh, so I was in the minority.
1: You were one of the insurrectionists. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Call me an insurrectionist. I hear a knock on the door. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah.
1: You, you would be the last person that I would think of sort of as a stereotypical J-6er. Um, you know, I can't, can't, you know, picture you with Q Shaman, you know, <laughs> prancing through the Capitol. <laughs> but no, seriously, Josh, I, I I hear you. I actually felt the same way. So you know, if, wouldn't it be wonderful if the, the smarter Democrats and then the rest of the Democrats behind them jump on board here? And say, yeah, let's fix the election system now that we have all of these people that want to do it.
0: And as you know, the opposite has happened. Um, January 6th turned into a way to ridicule anybody who questions the official count. And the last nail in the coffin of the election integrity movement came a couple of weeks ago in a lawsuit of Dominion voting machine company against Fox News. Fox News had the audacity to put on the air Rudolph Giuliani, who said, you know, those Dominion machines are crooked. And um, Dominion sued Fox News, didn't sue Giuliani, but sued Fox News for putting him on the air and not, quote, creating a context so that people would realize that he's lying, That's completely insane. I mean, isn't it? Giuliani is,
1: I mean, he, not only is he a huge public figure, of course, whatever he says is newsworthy, but Hey, I mean, he's an expert because he knows crooked.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's, that's what I would think. I mean, just look at his role in nine 11, but I, I, I would argue that Fox news is perfectly within their rights, probably within their obligations to put him on the air and give him a voice. If he has evidence that the election was stolen, then he, the, the news media ought to put him on the air. But um, Dominion Voting Machine Company thought differently of it. Their machines are impeccable, and how could you dare to question the integrity of their secret software that they use to count votes? Uh, so this this suit should have gone nowhere. And yet, so, so why should it go nowhere? One, because it's very hard to win these suits. You have to prove first that the, that Fox News was lying. First, you have to prove that the Dominion machines were honest. Why are you going to prove that? Their software is A trade secret. It's been ruled a trade secret by the Supreme Court and they're not allowed, they're not about to reveal their software in a court hearing because every time, um, voting machine software has come to light, it's been obvious that it's full of holes and easy to hack and has backdoors built into it. So that wasn't their plan. Uh, first, To win the suit, they would have to prove that the election wasn't stolen and that their voting machines actually were maligned because they're honest and Giuliani said they were dishonest. Second, they would have to prove that Fox News knew that they were dishonest, uh, that the machines were honest, knew that the election was not stolen, and with reckless disregard for the truth, they – put on Giuliani anyway and didn't debunk him on the air. And the third thing they'd have to prove is that this cost them a lot of money. They would have to prove um, damages to collect from Fox News. So it came as a huge surprise when Fox settled out of court for 70 70- Seven hundred eighty-seven million million, three three quarters of a billion dollars, which I figured was 45 years worth of sales for Dominion Voting. They, they're not a big company. $17 million a year was their biggest year in sales. So this represents 45 years worth of their sales. You really think that they're going to prove in court not only that their machines work, not only that Fox was in reckless disregard of the truth when they put Giuliani in the air, but also that they lost more than uh, 45 years' worth of their total revenue in their best year. This is, a,
1: this is a court case out of Alice in Wonderland.
0: So what's with Fox News? Why would Fox News pay this huge amount of money to settle a, a court case that really should have been thrown out?
1: And maybe Rupert Murdoch just likes to throw away money.
0: (laughs) He's known for that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you know, it almost, you know, if you were a conspiracy theorist, you'd think something hinky's going on here, wouldn't you?
0: (laughs) Call me a conspiracy theorist. So I I really don't know what's going on, but I've seen that uh, people have been murdered in the election integrity movement, not a whole lot, but. Prominently, no, my, so Mike. That, Mike we, Connell of
1: Wisconsin, Mike state yeah. buddy. Well, he's not. He wasn't my buddy, but uh, yeah, I guess we needed one of those time machines to go back and, and ask him about how he fixed the 2004 elections for uh, for Karl Rove and the Bush team, because he uh, he went down in that plane crash right before he was supposed to testify against Rove.
0: Yes, uh, you want to tell more of that story?
1: Well, that's that's pretty much <laughs> the capsule summary of what I remember.
0: Um, the other person that I know who, who died prominently, um, Mike Feeney was running for Congress in Florida and he hired a computer programmer named Clint Curtis to fix the voting machines so that they had a back door and somebody who knew the password could change the counts inside the machines. And. Uh, Clint Curtis was an honest guy, he was a Republican, but once he realized what was going on, he blew the whistle on this guy and it ended up being a lawsuit which um, really put Feeney's feet to the fire and the district attorney who had been pushing that lawsuit for a year, it, it was finally coming to a head, he was found dead in a hotel room. Uh, the week before the trial was scheduled.
1: Interesting. It's almost as if powerful interests really need to keep the elections fixable.
0: Yeah, it gives you faith in democracy, doesn't it? <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> yeah. may, maybe democracy would work if we just had a democratic government.
1: Yeah, it would be interesting to try it. And it also, this is just one of those many topics that makes me kind of grit my teeth and uh, roll my eyes when I listen to mainstream media, you know, NPR, for example. It's just so crazy. They're like, you know, fundamentalist religious fanatics and their religion is the impeccable voting machines, the impeccable election integrity. And anybody who doesn't just bow down and give up their critical thought and just embrace this wholeheartedly, Is, uh, is demonized as, as these, you know, conspiracy theory Trump supporting yahoos. Uh, when in fact, as, as you say, there's all kinds of really powerful evidence that our elections are anything but secure and deliberately so even.
0: Yeah. Um, everybody knows that the push button voting machines are vulnerable and maybe it's a little less well known that the optical scanners. Are just as vulnerable, you can program a scanner in such a way that uh, it reads the x's exactly right It's calibrated perfectly for the Republican candidate and for the Democratic candidate, the calibration is a little bit off so that it'll get maybe ninety five percent or ninety eight percent of the votes counted correctly, but because of the miscalibration it'll miss in two to three or five percent of those votes. And those things are very hard to catch. And even if they're caught, you say, well, you know, they've just made a mistake in the calibration. Um, but these that's the kind of thing, that's the kind of vulnerability that these op scan machines, optical scanners that scan your um, handwritten ballots, that's the, the problem that they have. You can use scanners to count votes only if you have a Hand counted votes as a backup, some statistical sample that's routinely counted or the ability to challenge it. If it's, uh, if somebody comes forward as uh, Jill Stein did in 2016, uh, demanding a recount, uh, which she never got. She never got the hand count that she paid millions of dollars for. Uh, and you wonder. Well, would it have shown if they really did hand count those votes in your home state of Wisconsin, which would which, which seem to be ground zero for uh, the, the theft?
1: Right. Yeah, I noticed that the, the mainstream media was ridiculing people who were calling for hand counted paper ballots, which seems odd to me because I guess, I guess the problem with that is A, that. Voting machine companies would lose profits. But, <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that be, it, would, it would cost the taxpayers a certain amount of money, I suppose. The argument would be that it's cheaper to use the machine than to hire all the people to count the votes.
0: Yeah, completely impractical to do it the way they do it in Canada and Germany and the UK. <laughs> right, right.
1: <laughs> Well, they must be profligate spenders of taxpayers' money in those countries. We, we yeah. have to save our money for more important things than actually having a democracy that works. But, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just completely bizarre. And, and of course the Trump, uh, election fraud charges, uh, coming from not just Trump himself, but from that side. Mostly, most of it wasn't about the machines. The Giuliani Dominion thing was the exception. A lot of it was about various kinds of you know, ballot stuffing and things like that. Uh, Danish D'Souza's movie, 2000 Mules, went into that aspect of it. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm yeah, with his, you. His but,
0: main uh, charge was yeah. that um, these mail-in ballots were collected and filled out en masse and delivered to the mail-in ballot places. Some, some of them, in, in my home state of Pennsylvania, were delivered after the the deadline, and they extended the deadline to to count all these extra Democratic ballots. Uh, there's there's at least anecdotal evidence that makes you wonder if that election was stolen. And as you say, it's not necessarily it wasn't necessarily done with the machines this time around. Mm -hmm.
1: Right. So is there any hope of fixing this or have the bad guys really, you know, created a a difficult situation by dividing us, you know, between the, uh, the Trump supporting won't believe anything uh, crowd. And then the supposedly more, you know, open-minded educated demographic, which is actually utterly brainwashed and brain dead on this topic.
0: Well, we know that, Trump has the ability to divide the public. And if he says something is true, like he says, hydroxychloroquine is going to be a good early treatment for COVID, then immediately two thirds of the country is going to say, Oh God, it can't possibly be true because Trump said it. Well,
1: I'd say 55%. I don't
0: think two thirds. (laughs) All right. That's 55%. But, uh, when Trump says something, it's the kiss of death. And I think that's the case with the, um, with election integrity. The elect, the Democrats had no interest in the subject before Trump. And now that Trump went on, uh, went out on a limb and said, I think the election was stolen. And then I don't know why, but Giuliani folded his card. Fold, folded his cards and stopped talking about it just a few days later without producing the evidence that he so loudly claimed that he had. Did somebody get to Giuliani or was he bluffing all along? I, yeah. I don't know.
1: Yes, yeah, it, it does. It's almost as if there are behind the scenes uh, things going on that we can sort of imagine the rough outlines of. But, uh, you know, it's 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 like that that was it Upton Sinclair over it was who said that, you know, you don't want to know uh, how, you know, the politics is made. It's like making sausage. You don't want to see it.
0: Um, But so the bad news, the bad news is that it's harder than ever to. Question the way our votes are counted, and we've got really (laughs) a, a very small number of people willing to to do that. Even the people who had been involved in my movement for election integrity are backing off because of Trump. And news services, after they saw what happened to Fox, are going to be very reluctant to make charges that the voting machines... To, to let
1: very famous public figures <laughs> say <laughs> newsworthy things.
0: <laughs> That's the bad news. And the good news is that if they're so threatened by democracy, just imagine you and I are going to live to see a more democratic uh, future for our country and when that happens it's going to be a completely different ball game
1: well I I, I don't know how powerful those life extension pills you're peddling have to be uh, for us to see <laughs> that but I, I hope you're right inshallah well thank you so much Josh mildorf it's always fun talking with you uh, brilliant work keep up it's
0: mutual I love talking to you okay take care thanks for the work you do Kevin alright thanks oh.
1: Josh bye that's Josh mildorf back in the second hour with benoit campmark talking about julian assange and some really funny business around uh, what happened to him stick around